Shortly after the publication of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, there were a couple of polls conducted nationally. And the very first poll I conducted said that in spite of the characterization genocide, that seven out of 10 Canadians wanted to reconcile. Two or three years later, another report came and said more than eight out of 10, 84% of Canadians still wanted to reconcile. And so somewhere out there in our country, uh, there's a real desire by so many people to want to reconcile. I'm Michael Tamblin, CEO of Rakuten Kobo. This is Kobo in Conversation. My guest today is Chief Robert Joseph, a hereditary chief of the Kwahwahinuk First Nation, honorary witness of Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and he's joining us on this show because he's the author of a new book, Namoyut, A Path to Reconciliation. In this book, Chief Joseph shares an intimate view of his own life and experiences while making an impassioned plea to readers to embrace vulnerability, summon the courage to recognize truth and trauma, and take steps towards reconciliation. Chief Joseph, welcome to Kobo. Yeah, thank you. That, that's a really wonderful uh, introduction. Thank you for that. You served as an honorary witness to Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission. You're the ambassador for Reconciliation Canada and an officer of the Order of Canada. And so based on that, one might think that you've done a lot and it's time to put your feet up, uh, but you also wrote this book, uh, Namoyet. Uh, why write a book now? Uh, it was so important to to write uh, the uh, book. We're on the threshold of probably the greatest social change about to happen in Canada. And we need to more than ever uh, get to know each other, all Canadians and Indigenous people. We have to acknowledge... Um, the state of our union, that it has, hasn't been a, a good, that there's been too deep a divide and division between Indigenous people and the newcomers to this country. So it's important always to begin from the beginning, to tell our stories to each other so that we truly understand how we got into this mess that we're in at the moment mm -hmm. and how we begin to visualize pathways to reconciliation together. And we need absolutely everybody in the country, every color, every race, every creed, to engage in this process called reconciliation, because that's who we are. We represent just about all of the diversity and difference among humankind. Mm -hmm. and, and so it's no different in Canada. We need to, uh, with all the ethnic groups and other groups uh, get together now and have a dialogue, a discussion where um, a meaningful discussion takes place because it won't, uh, uh, transformation won't happen unless we have this discussion. And so the book is timely in regard to pointing out some of that ancient history from one person's perspective, mine, but that it represented and reflected the experiences of so many people across the country. And on the other side of the equation, ever since the uh, first newcomer came, uh, uh, the, the, the separation division, racism, hatred has uh, existed. And we won't get past that unless we talk to each other, look each other in the eye and say, oh, my God, I'm, I'm sorry, I forgot we were all human beings. And can you explain specifically what Namoyot means, with the, the meaning of that term? Yeah, uh, uh, Namoyot uh, is found in the Kwakwala language of the Kwakwakwak Nation on the uh, Pacific Northwest coast. It's an ancient language. And this one word is so paramount, Namoyot. It means we are all one. And Namuyut was said in salutation every day for 
everyday common uh, meetings between people, but it had a deeper context as well. We also knew that we were one with the universe, one with creation, one with the animal world, uh, one with the uh, birds that fly and those things that swim. And when we had encounters with those elements, any part of those elements, we would acknowledge that we were uh, Namuyut, whether we were thanking them for the bounty from which we got sustenance, or whether we were encountering a grizzly bear, and we said, please, please keep me safe, Namuyut. <laughs> so, uh, so imagine if we thought of the world around us in that context, uh, just the level of sanctity would be so high that we have respect and admiration and acceptance of everything and everyone in our universe. And so not just a philosophical term, but something that you would say to each other, like a, as a greeting. Would, yeah, upon meeting each other on a road or wherever, we would say, Tela Kesla Namayut. Greetings, you who are one with me. And so it was an everyday common salutation at the same time uh, as it summons a higher consciousness mm -hmm. about our the presence and well-being. And I think that um, we chose Namayut as a core value for Reconciliation Canada because that's what we're really doing. And here's the thing, we're actually calling our, all of ourselves, Canadians all, to, to live out our highest consciousness, to be our best selves, mm -hmm. to always care for others, that we have a responsibility to each other. And so Namiyut has all of that connotation. And it's so simple and straightforward and, and such common usage that we, we, we build that spirit through one word of interconnectedness between us, that we all share the same space and, and that we all need to, as I said, take care of each other. A major theme of the, the book is that the need to look straight on at hurt, to hear testimony and to take in the, the details of of harm that's taken place you know especially through um, the relationship between settlers and indigenous people residential school system how do you hope to change what do you hope to change by having people hear that message uh, one of the things i've learned while working on reconciliation is that one absolute need is to have dialogue between us. Begin to look each other in the eye, sit around kitchen tables, sit around town halls, or wherever we meet Canadians and Indigenous people. And, and, and um, included in the Canadians, of course, is this uh, extension of all of the diversity we have in Canada. Mm -hmm. So uh, the focus deepens a little bit when, when we talk about our oneness between Canadians and we, Indigenous people, but between Canadians and themselves, everybody on earth is here. So we begin. We need to begin to recognize that was as well, because racism and hatred has no walls, and we have to begin to tear down those walls. And the only way, the only way, will be when we have deep dialogue with meaning that actually transforms our consciousness. Just to get a sense of how this story is rooted, can you tell me a little bit about your life and the community you grew up in before you went to residential school? Yes, I uh, just before I went to residential school, I was uh, just uh, six years old, I think. I, I lived in a beautiful little place um, called Guayastins. It's called Guilford Island. Guilford Island today, it's a colonial name for it. But it was on a midden, thousands of years old, uh, with clamshells going down as deep as you could dig. And it indicated just how long 
we must have been there through all of that millennia, uh, um, growing our families, little children growing up. And, and there, there was still uh, the worldview of indigenous people was still intact. And it's an all-inclusive worldview. And I imagine other worldviews feel the same way, but uh, inclusive of our connection to the land where our very genesis were spoken of, emanating from the land through magical, supernatural transformation. And at that time, every person who grew up in Guayostems uh, could relate to that genesis, to that moment, to that energy that became our first ancestor. And so we had this deep connection, not only to the territory, but to the families who believed in the same things, who spoke the same language, but who were so close-knit in our communities. It was one of the best places for a child to grow up. There were there was so much love. I remember as a little boy growing up and I kept hearing things like Wadzid, my granny or my aunties or other uh, relatives in the uh, community would say, Greetings, my monumental one. Or Tlugwe, hello, supernatural gift. <laughs> supernatural gift, Tlugwe. And there was these magical words one word at a time sometimes mm -hmm. that gave us such a sense of value and belonging and connectedness. And it was really, really a happy time and such a contrast when we all started ending up in those residential schools. We're struggling really hard to regain some of the the, the, the elements of worldview that we held in the old days around culture and dance and song, about spiritual uh, realities for us. And, and so we're, we're reviving our language, reviving our dance and song, like I said, and reclaiming some of the past upon which our civilization grew up upon. And I think that's really important. There has to be a uh, continuity. And, and one of the things about Canada is that it's a young country and the people who came are newcomers. They don't have that uh, millennia, millennial uh, uh, life experience from which knowledge grows. Mm -hmm. Starting from scratch, 150 years uh, in British Columbia, for instance, and it's just not the same. And so, for all of the morality uh, and the moral, uh, the moral uh, 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 framework in, in which we work uh, doesn't apply to newcomers unless they're sort of in some religious uh, experience and are trying to, trying to create. Uh, something uh, uh, with the longevity that we have around our history. Mm -hmm. Like history is so important. And that's why in reconciliation, we all have to return to history, yours and mine. And we talk about it, but in the mutual sense, uh, we're not going to really reconcile. If, I, if I'm the only guy telling you my history, you're going to have to tell me your history so I can have a deeper understanding about who you are. And it's important for us, therefore, to have dialogue, dialogue, dialogue. It's, that's how we transform our country, I think. Your book also talks about some of the traditions that were outlawed in communities to to kind of break down the social structures of indigenous communities. Can you can you talk a bit about what the what the potlatch meant in your community and why that was so important? Yeah, it was it was huge. It, uh, the potlatch was so actually it underlying everything about us and you could even get that sense even as a young boy or young man growing up you recognize that the potlatch actually if understood by others who 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 uh, condemned it would have known that the potlatch uh, uh, contained uh, the existence of our spiritual beliefs to 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 a to a creator 
uh, and that all of our moral obligations to behave in good ways flowed from the teachings, even in the potlatch. And it is where we uh, uh, practice nawalak, means supernatural, ceremonies. So we danced to acknowledge all of the elements of creation, like I mentioned earlier, the, the humankind, the undersea kingdom, the forest kingdom, animal kingdom, the spirit world, and the potlatch um, gave expression to all of those. So it, it was the basis upon which we were allowed to experience the values of the adults. I'm speaking as a child now. Mm-hmm. And begin to slowly understand the importance of all of the laws within the context of the uh, potlatch. The potlatch was in, in every way the central constitution for the Kwekwekewa people, and I'm sure other indigenous groups as well, but just speaking for myself. And so as we grew up, we marked every occasion in life for children, uh, you validated them through ceremonies, through giving them names throughout the course of their lives and making them know exactly where they belong by these ceremonies and by the names given or the dances or songs that were placed upon us. And we truly understood uh, our reason for existing. In a long way, we learned that from early childhood to teenagers to young manhood. We knew what our purpose was for living within the context of this, uh, not only a physical constitution, but a spiritual constitution. So it wasn't separate like the state is with the church mm-hmm. in modern times. It was all encompassing. It was numiut with it. Everything was numiut with each other, one with each other, our, our, our laws, uh, our, uh, and we had policies, they weren't written, but they were all interrelated, interconnected. And the idea was that if you had all of this energy and uh, a mass of knowledge and practice, uh, that it always had to be balanced uh, in harmony and, and, and peaceful to bring about the best in all of our citizenship. So potlatch has a very deep meaning beyond the drama and the color and the ritual and the mystery, because there's a lot of mystery in in dances sometimes. And so banning it uh, for 75 years must have been a, a very effective way to take out a piece of, of, of social and economic and cultural infrastructure that tied the community together. Oh my gosh, you just hit it there, absolutely. And uh, the authorities, government, uh, came so close, so close to achieving that goal. And, and that's why, in part, uh, we hear people beginning to talk about genocide because all of those government initiatives were intended to destroy our belief systems, our political systems, our economic systems. Every system we had, they intended to completely erase that and make us in their image that there was only one law and that was uh, the newcomer law. And they simply wanted to erase all all of our ancient knowledge and laws that evolved through the course of uh, millennia. And and it was a really dark time for indigenous people during that particular period. They, they resisted, however, they didn't um, lie down and give up. Uh, there were uh, 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 ceremonies, potlatches conducted in secret in hidden places so that authorities couldn't see them. And they did that long enough so that by the time the statute on the potlatch ban was simply removed, there was no announcement of its removal. Mm-hmm. It just, just was removed in 1955, I think. 
we 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 still had a, a a base from which to redevelop this idea of culture being super important. And I I really have to say that I'm really pleased at the uh, uh, pace of recovery in our area. Young people everywhere in our villages and communities are delving right into the idea of reclaiming language. And there are various different language groups going on, everybody working hard. And I've never seen until this time just how deep they're delving into it. Mm-hmm. And I'm my faith is growing little by little by little that we're going to be able to save Kwakwala as the language. And of course, uh, with the practice of ritual and ceremony, uh, anytime you have a potlatch in our communities now, there isn't enough space to accommodate all of That's always a now. good sign. <laughs> yeah, uh, young people. And they're so interested and they're so committed to learning more about what it means to them. And so this generational transfer of knowledge and skill and everything else is is happening. And we are truly going to, first of all, reconcile within our own ranks as Indigenous people, but we're going to reconcile as well with uh, all Canadians and bring forward some of the magic and mystery and power and impact and influence of Indigenous culture that will benefit all Canadians. One of the things I deeply believe in is that we can't we can't um, reconcile on our own. If we're going to reconcile, it's going to be because Canadians included want to reconcile and are going to engage and we're going to marry together all of the wisdom and the science between the groups to to make uh, our country even better and we're going to uh, establish new heights of humanity for us love compassion caring for each other and that's just going to take time and a lot of hard work but every step we take, starting now, uh, is going to be critically important to creating that uh, massive reconciliation that's going to engulf the country one day. That doesn't mean we're going to uh, ring a bell and say reconciliation is completed. Mm-hmm. We never can do that because every generation, every generation has to sustain the momentum. Not we anymore in this time, but the next generation has to carry on and meet the failings and shortcomings of humanity, our humanity. And so um, it's gonna be exciting though, because we're gonna be better than we've we've ever been. And our children are gonna be better than what we have been. And that's sort of a nice way to think think about it. And I, I, I sense as we're, as we're talking, you know, we're kind of, we're doing this swing back and forth between the the past and the you know, kind of the past and the future that we're we're kind of moving between the things that that have happened that brought us here, and then your hope for uh, for what can happen next. So I'm gonna I'm gonna swing us into the past a, a bit again for a second. At six years old, um, you were taken away from this community. And for those who have experienced residential school or who have parents or grandparents or friends who have experienced it, they know those experiences or they've heard stories about them. People that don't know that experience or who haven't read the reports of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission may not understand why it was so harmful or what was so harmful about it and it's i mean it's a huge topic to get into but it would be so helpful if you could give just a a sense or a snapshot of what life was like there for you as a as a six-year-old as you walked through those doors for the first time yeah i remember the very um last time that i left guilford island and i was with my sister, she's uh, deceased now, and our foster mother. And so we had to take this boat ride 
from this beautiful Eden, this paradise that I have an image of in my mind. And we traveled to Alert Bay by boat, and it was such a beautiful day. The waves were rolling, sun was shining brightly. Uh, the wind was whispering all around us, but not ferociously. And it happened at that day that it seemed to me that we were serenaded by all of the elements that we were truly used to in our territories before the whale hunters came in. And we saw whales and dolphins serenading and saluting us, eagles soaring overhead and 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 otters on the beaches, uh, awkward seagulls, uh, uh, ravens prancing in dignity. Just and and I remember the images of that natural world before I finally stepped foot in into sort of a current current day um, image of the world, and we got to alert me and I. I there were um, 10 or 12 steps to the um, first floor of the building. And I remember I, I was staring up when we got there and I saw this man on the top of the stairs. He had a black, black um, suit or outfit on and a white collar. And I, I'd hardly, I couldn't remember when I'd seen a white person before. So I wondered who and what this man was and what we were doing there. And I was getting a little scared. But anyway, we got up to the landing and then went into the building itself. And, and the, um, the man was talking to my mother. And I knew my mother didn't understand because she just had her head down like this. And, and then finally, um, he handed my hand over to this man in black. And we uh, took a left turn in a long hallway, went down a flight of steps and ended up in the basement. And right at the corner of that room, there were a number uh, of little boys standing uh, naked. One was in a chair with somebody uh, brushing a bowl cut over his head. And he was sent in and the others were sent in. Uh, they had taken my clothes and I was standing there buck naked. And finally my turn uh, came and I got the haircut and they ushered me into this huge uh, common shower room. I don't know, there were six or eight shower stalls and every little guy was standing there trying to come up their private parts and being embarrassed and humiliated. And then they pushed us all into the under the showers and we were cramped and um, bumping into each other and feeling embarrassed about that and ashamed about that. Then they started to poke and prod us in uh, humiliating ways. And, and then we were ordered out of the shower and, and then uh, uh, they painted our bodies in some white liquid and then they doused our head in kerosene and, and those were the very first images or uh, things I, re I remember about so long ago. Uh, and we had been treated so lovingly in, in our own ways, in our own places. And to suddenly find ourselves in this huge, strange, huge building was pretty scary. And we weren't allowed to speak Kwakwala. So there were people in the school who spoke Kwakwala. There were seven languages in that school, by the way, from all the coastal First Nations. And uh, none of us were ever allowed to speak our languages, although we did when we were uh, away from earshot from supervisors. Like in games, for instance, we would have teams playing baseball or soccer. And we'd all end up, our teams would represent the nation languages that we uh, uh, were a part of. So it was fun to know that we could use our language a little bit in those times. But uh, as, and, and, the, and those languages were spoken by representatives from all seven nations. But when I left years later, there wasn't, I never heard a Kwakwala language ever spoken. Uh, um, further to that, uh, in the evening, 
uh, when it was bedtime, they ushered us into our our dorms. There was a for the older boys, the senior boys, middle school and lower school. So we were the lower school, the little kids, and and that's how we were divided by dormitory. So when I ended up with those other little guys who were my age, um, it was scary. We uh, we were all ordered to stand beside our beds, given pajamas, and then ordered to kneel down beside the bed and ask to recite as best we could, because there weren't too many people speaking English yet, uh, um, recite the prayer that the supervisor was asking us to speak to but when he left when he left the uh room turn out the lights and locked the door uh i could hear in the darkness all these little sniffles all these little kids so lonely so afraid they had to be because that's how i was feeling and so i i, I was crying and i couldn't cry anymore my tears dried out <laughs> Finally, I started daydream about being home, daydreaming at night, mind you, but dreaming about home, and eventually uh, fell asleep. But the very first morning, there was a bell ringing so loud. I didn't know I'd hear that hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times through the years, three or four times a day, this bell uh, 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 awakening us. And I heard it, and then I heard the supervisor screaming and shouting and hollering and banging in the door and coming in and hollering things like, get up, you dirty little Indian, get up, it's time to get up. And he'd be running from bed to bed, stripping some um, uh, bedding where the people where the kids were really slow to respond. He'd tip over them, flip over the beds. And when everybody was up, uh, he said to all of us, and now I want to talk to the bedwetters. And we had quite a few bedwetters. And I think tension brings that about, I guess. Um, so there were six or seven little boys who raised their hands. And he said, you see these stupid little Indians? They wet their beds. They should be ashamed of themselves. Here's what I want the rest of you to do. To, to do form two lines at the doorway. And these bedwetters, these dumb Indians are going to walk through the gauntlet and you're going to slap them. Wherever you want to slap them, you hit them. Uh, and that's the only way they're going to get their laundry, uh, their bed beddings to the laundry. And so we did that. And then the next, it's, it's all on one day, this thing. Mm -hmm. And then thing, uh, we're ushered into the dining room and I've not been in the dining room before, but it's huge, it's cavernous, it's a basement. And on one side were all the boys, including myself. On the other half were all the girls. We were segregated all through that time. And I was amazed and we're all looking like this and suddenly the supervisors uh, hollered and said, if you look that way, you're gonna be punished. You're not ever, to wave or try to talk to any of those girls. So you mind your own business. Anyway, we sat down after the, the prayer, I must have said thousands of times as well over time, um, uh, it was said, and they started serving the food. And we all had these metal um, long tables, chairs on each side. And they had picked a table captain to dish out the food. So finally, I had my porridge in front of me. And I looked in there, and there were uh, things moving around there. <laughs> it's the first time I seen worms in the porridge, black, black heads. And I looked, and I looked at the boy next door. All of the porridge was like that. And so I thought, well, what I, I can't eat this. So I watched um, the guy to the right. I saw him uh, shift all the worms to the side of the bowl and he ate from the middle. So I thought, well, the best thing I can do while I'm here is just try to follow what others are doing that keeps them safe and, and keeps them from being cuffed on the head or strapped by ruler or pointer or whatever. 
So those were sort of uh, the experiences that happened over a long period of time. Mm -hmm. and, and as I thought back on my early time in that school, I, I, I figured that even for the first two weeks or so, probably all of damage had been done already. That whatever trauma I had, I didn't know anything about trauma, but whatever the damage was, it was completed in the first two weeks. And then it was just piled upon over time as we entered uh, the classrooms uh, that day as well. Mm -hmm. I, I've never meet, met a teacher so cruel as this uh, grade one uh, teacher. For every infraction, every conceivable infraction she could make herself, uh, we were uh, forced to stand up in corners, uh, beat by leather strap or pointer, like I said. And my schooling, for most, for the most part in those early years, was uh, uh, not really an education in learning, but an education in uh, preparing for uh, trauma, preparing for the slap, the hit, or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And there's no real concentration on uh, or interest in learning anything other than to try and not be harmed. And, and that happened, that was such a typical day. <laughs> and you describe how, you know, that was, you know, that was just kind of a compounding from, from there on for years afterwards. How would you describe the person who came out of that experience? Well, yeah. So after all of that, all of that experience of, of being afraid all the time, uh, of, of being traumatized, that's really what what happens, you become traumatized and, mm -hmm. and your body's only natural reaction and response is immediately to try either try to uh, trying to survive that or avoiding it. So we lived in constant, excuse me, constant fear. And uh, I know years later, when I began to start working with survivors around healing, just before Truth and Reconciliation came around, it wasn't, and we sat around in circles all across the country. There were 1,500 uh, funded uh, residential school healing circles. And we, we skated around all of our experience until one day, I heard this word trauma, and then we began to have people who understood it, who were trained in it, and I realized suddenly there was a reason for my uh, break, uh, breakdown, my, my fear, my failing, that I wasn't uh, just a bad person like the supervisors always said every day, one way or another that it was this trauma. And as soon as we were able to um, identify that, we began to recognize that we could, because we now knew what it was, uh, attempt to deal with that trauma, to find ways to heal and to move away from the core responses that trauma gives to everybody. And when I left school, I was just so angry. I, 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 I really wanted peace because I've always been that way. Always. I just know that. And yet I was angry and you can't find peace if you're living in anger or if you're living with a long history of despair and brokenness. Peace is hard to find and you can't find healing until you understand all of that and you put it together and you start to slowly find steps towards healing. And eventually it leads to reconciliation and it eventually leads to the idea that all of us, every human being, whether we're in close contact or we're just neighbors or maybe my boss or somebody, we're all 
in this together. We're we're uh, human. We're part of humanity, and it, it it starts slowly to slide back to ancient indigenous uh, worldview about interconnectedness, mm-hmm. like it's an empathy. The 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 the, uh, the the view that we're all one, that we all belong, and that we're part of the universe. Um, the only way I uh, eventually uh, moved to healing and reconciliation was by uh, divine intervention. I had a have a vision, an epiphany, that actually shook me to the core and allowed me to begin to see clearly and this was when your your friend took you fishing and it was like a like a turning point an awakening yes can you describe that experience a little bit you know i worked really hard even with all of the trauma that i carried and the despair and the unbelieving of my own self i i worked really hard to try to be something but if you're if if you do these things and they're uh, they're things of valor or success, but deep inside you uh, you have this voice saying no, you're not good enough to do that or be that or anything for that matter. It's a really uh, uh, difficult role to uh, uh, follow. So one day uh, I was in Canberra River. I had a really good job. I had a big house, I had a couple of cars and a garage, you know, those kind of things. And I was working in the civil service. And but and I had lots of good jobs before that. But every time I was haunted by my memories of those experiences in St. Michael's Residential School, I would drink. Uh, I would drink uh, for a day two, three, and it just grew. And so that when that happened in my good job, I began to feel embarrassed and ashamed. And so I didn't want to work there anymore because I developed good friends who were believing in me, thinking I was worthy and a good human being, good colleague. And I'd move on, find another job. So my last job was in Camberver. And it was really a public job. I um, I was a district manager for Indian and Northern Affairs Canada. I had a big staff, uh, and all of the communities north of Camber River Indigenous were our clients, and we did well. But one day, I I found my wife and my children had left. I have five children, and and they had been getting tired of this pattern and the harm that comes with that pattern, the effect it has on them. So of course I did what I'd always done. I started to drink really lots. And pretty soon I wasn't working and soon the power in my house was cut off. I read, so every day, every, uh, as soon as I woke up, I would head to the bar and do the same thing. And then somehow end up back home at whatever time it was. And I would get to the house and try to listen. The bedroom in my house was, uh, the master bedroom was in the front where the roadway comes to the house. And I would listen to see if I could hear my wife walking up the pathway. Or I'd listen to see if I could hear my children's pitter-patter, their feet pitter-pattering in in the house. And then I'd fall into... uh, deep sleep until I woke up again like this. One day I ran into this friend of mine. I used to fish with him. And he said to me, Bob, you wait up. I want to talk to you. So I didn't want to wait up. I didn't want to talk to him. Uh, But nonetheless, he insisted. So he said, I don't like what you've done to yourself, what you're doing to yourself. You should get out of town for a day or two even just to get out of town and break from this a little. I said, okay. I, I knew I was in trouble, so I didn't argue with him. He said, you know where the boat is tied up. Just go down there now, and we're going to leave early in the morning. So I don't know how I got to that boat, but we. I woke up in the morning and opened my eyes. And for a millisecond, I was okay. And then I remembered who I was, what I'd become. 
I could smell the booze uh, oozing out of my pores and the despair and the darkness sang, swept over me. I looked around and everybody else on the boat was asleep. So I, I was so full of shame and so embarrassed. I didn't want to see them then until I snuck out of the bunk, went through the engine room up to the galley, to the back of the boat and discovered we were anchored out in a place called Green Sea Bay in Johnson Street, Vancouver Island on the other side. And as I got to the deck, I was crying. I was so desperate. And I, I, I walked around a drum. There's a huge drum at the stern of the boat. And I threw myself behind behind, behind the drum thinking, uh, I'm going to hide behind this drum. I, I just really didn't want to be seen anymore. Mm -hmm. But as I had walked toward the drum, I saw that Johnson Straits, that's the name of the body of water. It was so powerful. It was coral, green, blue. It had lightning rods uh, streaming through it, so much energy. And I saw the forest really dense, green, powerful. And I saw the lightning bolts going through that. And soon I was uh, staring into the heavens and I saw the whole universe. They're sort of images I've seen on television, sometimes in real, but they came back as images in my mind. Mm. And uh, as I stayed, stared upward, I heard this voice say to me, in spite of what you've done to yourself, I love you and you belong to all of this. And then I came back to the moment, uh, crept back into my bunk. Uh, we went fishing that day. And then late that evening, we headed back to uh, Campbell River. And I did what I'd always done when I scared and running and don't have any capacity to think anyway. I borrowed money from the crew members and went back to the darkest corner of the bar in Campbell River. But it was different this time. I drank and drank and somewhere near closing time i realized that i just wasn't getting high mm -hmm. I, I took myself away from the table and i walked home my, my home was walking distance from downtown and i lay down and i had the best sleep ever in my life and i woke up the next morning i just knew i couldn't go back to that lifestyle i couldn't drink anymore and that i needed help and i wanted to change and ever since that time i've been on this road promoting healing for others and myself um, uh, encouraging reconciliation for all of us and i think that had it not been for that divine intervention i probably would have been doing a damn same thing. I just didn't have the mm -hmm. capacity. I don't know if I would have had the capacity to turn direction as I've done in all these uh, 20 years. But the, but the story behind that vision is that my worst, worst fears was that I was all alone and nobody cared and nobody loved me and I was worthless and had no purpose. And that vision changed everything. Uh, so in all the work I've been doing in the last two and a half decades, I've been guided by that experience. And then I, I had a couple of visions in the course of this, my lifetime, that have guided my experience. Yeah. There's a, a subtle point that you make in the book that I was hoping you could expand on a bit here. You say that your work on reconciliation has shown you that there are two kinds of people, those who have suffered and and in whom we can recognize our own trials and traumas, and those who are ready to listen and make things right. And it's it's such an interesting distinction because it means that anyone who's resistant to reconciliation, and unfortunately, you know, we do hear from those who would just want to put all this in the past and have everybody get over it um I, yeah the they're also kind of the first type 
you know, they're also part of the the hurt and suffering type too. Um, and I'm just, I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts around those, those two kinds of people. Yeah, we, uh, um, with respect to the indigenous people, um, you know, you know, uh, it's so difficult to be part of a race of people that's been colonized by every measure. Uh, the things that the colonizers do uh, uh, intentionally or not subjugates uh, indigenous people, removes them from their natural reality from Genesis times and everything, their principles and values, their belief systems and their practices, just everything about the colonized people is dismissed and, and, and the newcomers impose everything that we don't understand, everything that we don't know about. And it's such a major rift, a departure between us. And it only gets worse when the boots are on the ground, when the people started coming from overseas and began to migrate to our territories. Uh, they were not, not, these impacts were not only from government edict anymore but they flowed from the senses of the newcomers through prejudice, wrongful assumption, uh, hatred, uh, racism. And, and that's where the real damage begin, begins to happen. Uh, and so, and that's why I think uh, um, indigenous people and all other Canadians really need to understand this separation division and we're not going to do that through the normal course of programs that exist. We're going to do that because we're embracing each other face to face, looking each other in the heart, uh, being compassionate, having sympathy, understanding each other more, growing respect. Uh, on the part, uh, it's probably a ways down the road, but I, I believe that as Indigenous people, when we're on the road to reconciliation with more or most Canadians were going to have to respect the stories coming from the other experience mm -hmm. so that we can fully understand and they know uh, and the others know that we're we're understanding of how racism and hatred and colonization uh, uh, is a process that causes harm in this case harm to us and we we can't rebuild reconcile until we have those really meaningful discussions that i talked about before uh, transformation comes hard if we don't talk to each other it's been seven years since the publication of the findings of the truth and reconciliation commission and at the at the time you said i think it was on an interview with the the cbc that you had mixed feelings about the report uh, that there was both happiness that the, the truth had come out that the horror of residential schools had been recognized but then also the realization that it really did mean you were living in a country that had you know perpetrated acts of, of genocide that had tried to wipe out a people and then finally that at least it gave you a framework to move forward towards reconciliation and i think that i think you talked about that in about 2000 you know, sort of just after the publication i'm wondering how you feel about uh how you feel about it now seven years later you know it's um little known that uh, shortly after the publication of the truth and reconciliation commission there were a couple of polls conducted nationally and the very first poll I conducted said that in spite of the characterization genocide, that seven out of 10 Canadians wanted to reconcile. Two or three years later, another report came and said more than eight out of 10, 84% of Canadians still wanted to reconcile. And so somewhere out there uh, in our country, 
uh, there's a real desire by so many people to want to reconcile. And I think that as a result of the discovery of the truth between us all, uh, as a result of the findings of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, that we have never been as aware about our relationships between Indigenous people and all other Canadians. We have never been, we have never even thought of it. It was just a reality that on one side that was, there was despair and brokenness and hopelessness. And, and on the other side, Canadians living the Canadians' dream, driven by what they thought were to be really good values and, and everything good about their uh, society, of course. But now, seven years later, we've been educating each other, and so many more Canadians are, are more aware about our history together and the state of being for Indigenous people in this time. And that, that's a huge step, a huge step. We could have continued that path of destruction and, and nothing would have changed. And little children born to indigenous communities would have been still, still born into desperation and brokenness. But now we have all kinds of Canadians and indigenous people talking about reconciliation, asking what does reconciliation mean and um, trying to de determine where do we start? And that's so huge. And I think a large part of Canada has undergone that process. In, in addition to that, I know that uh, various governments um, in various degrees have uh, um, attempted to respond to reconciliation, something they have never responded to before. It was always by dictate or edict that they approached us. And now there's more discussion about what is the best way that we can support each other, support you to grow toward justice and equality and inclusion so that nobody gets, gets left behind and our children walk hand in hand in the playgrounds or where we live and work and play. We have never been this far before. Um, mm -hmm. Provincial government, federal governments uh, aren't quick enough, but they're given the politics, given what politics is, they're at the moment trying to toe the line between electability and the polls and between doing what's right or additional. <laughs> for indigenous people, civil society is, you know, I've worked with multi-faith groups that represent a lot of the diversity in our community. They're really interested and they're finding ways to engage with us, big business, small business. Uh, there are so many efforts going on. I think one of the uh, problems we have is we don't have a platform to which we can report all of the efforts that are going on where we can share best practices and help each other grow out this thing called reconciliation. So while people are impatient, while nothing is absolutely uh, TV worthy of uh, coverage, uh, all the small acts of reconciliation are important. As a matter of fact, they're probably the glue to a sustaining sense of peaceful uh, relationship and inclusion. So I, I'm, I, I'm glad I saw this time. And I'm 83, I turned 83 the other day. Uh, I saw this time. And for this time, uh, it, it is what it is. And so as long as we're committed to continuing the, uh, the progress of that, I, I'm really happy that this is happening. Every small step, every big step, it's a journey. One brick at a time, we build it. And everybody, stay the course. That's usually my, my, my advice to people. Stay the course. Be, be brave. Be courageous. Stand your ground. Do what you can. Wherever you live and work and play, every Canadian is needed in this process. I listened to a speech you gave back in 2016, where 
you talked about how this give gives Canadians, um, you know, the opportunity to be who we say we are, fair and just and inclusive and caring and equal and compassionate, and that participation and reconciliation it gives us the opportunity to do that and to to be that. So thank you so much for uh, for spending some time with me today and uh, and giving me a sense that that you know that opportunity is possible and that uh, that there is the you know the chance for reconciliation to really continue to move forward. Thank you. I'm you know equally i'm I'm so honored to be on this podcast to have my voice heard and respected and i think that's how we move forward to, together create a mutual space of respect for each other so thank you very much as well oh i think a great pleasure i've been speaking with chief dr robert joseph author of the new book namwayo a path to reconciliation you can find it at kobo.com conversation there's a link in the show notes Kobo in Conversation is produced by Nathan Maharaj and hosted by me, Michael Tamlin. And if it so happens that you're listening to this on Truth and Reconciliation Day, we're really glad that we could be a part of that with you.